Let's take our Bibles, turn to the book of Hosea. So we, we turn our attention again to the first of the, the 12 minor prophets, and it has been a, a month, all right? It's been a month since uh, we have been together, uh, close, close to it. I think it was right at the end of April was the last time we, we did uh, our thing here uh, in, uh, in Hosea. So uh, tonight we, we have a little bit of, I think, review to do. I just want to make sure that we're, we're all caught up, that we get to where we need to be in Hosea, and so we'll have uh, some weeks in a row where we can uh, finish this book. And again, just as a reminder, though I've not done a great job at this, my, my intention through this series is to, to give us insight in, into these 12 books, uh, though we will walk our way through each of them, to maybe not do it like we're doing in Romans, uh, though so far we're kind of doing it like I've been doing it in Romans, and so it's not my fault, it's the way I was trained. Nonetheless, uh, I do think that there is benefit in getting a broader view of these books, especially these that are called minor prophets. Uh, they, they are not minor in that they are insignificant, but they're smaller, they're odd, they're hard to find. In fact, some of this talking maybe is giving one or two of you still an extra minute or two to even find Hosea, all right? Because this part of our Old Testament, uh, these, uh, these are unswam waters. That's not a word, but you know what I mean, right? I mean, these are waters we don't really dive into very much. What's interesting, though, about them, Hosea in particular, I think this is one of Paul's favorite books. Hosea does show up, uh, and the other minor prophets do show up, though, though they may not be quoted as such. They sh- do show up in the New Testament. Uh, as Paul is reflecting on the gospel in a book like Romans, he's doing so by bringing in the Old Testament. And the lion's share of his references are coming from prophetic books. So, tonight we turn our, our attention again to Hosea, the first. He is the first for a reason. He was put first on purpose. He's not the first because he's the longest, though he is the longest of the minor prophets. And he's not first because he was the first one to write of these minor prophets. Instead, Hosea sets the tone for what the Jews viewed as one book in twelve movements, meaning the twelve minor prophets were viewed as kind of one larger work with twelve chapters in it. And Hosea sets the stage for us. Hosea really presents for us a picture of of what God is doing in Israel and then what God is going to do through the larger work of the gospel, I would argue, in really unsuspecting ways. It is unfortunate that for most people to think of these prophets, we think of harsh judgment. Most people bring to mind an angry God. Most, most would think these, these books are, are full of graphic depictions of judgment upon His people. Now, to be sure, there is that. But you read the book of Hosea, you find a book of profound, radical, unconditional, redeeming love. Hosea is a book that reminds us that the people of God called Israel were wicked and rebellious and hard-hearted and idolatrous 
And through it all, though God warned them again and again, if you don't return to me in covenant loyalty, you will be judged. That still was not God's final word. Hosea is a picture to us of what is God's profound redeeming love. God is an ever-faithful God, a God who when He makes a covenant promise, keeps a covenant promise. And so that has been our focus in the Minor Prophets, Hosea being then our first one. And so turning our attention once again, if you keep in mind, it's there on your notes. Here's kind of the pattern that we'll follow as we talk about these Minor Prophets. We've already looked at his context. So we've talked about the history of Hosea, his background. And if, and if, you, know, if you don't recall this, something I think that's worth remembering, Hosea possibly ministered for at least 50 years, and maybe reached 60. He very well could be the longest-running prophet in Israel's history. Most of us probably wouldn't guess that if we were asked that trivia question, right? But, but Hosea prophesies for a long time. You can tell that by the list of kings that he lays out for us. We know that both Isaiah and Jeremiah read and, and speak of Hosea. They don't name him, but clearly they are getting material from Hosea. Jeremiah, in particular, uh, is getting information from Hosea. So we looked at some of that context. Then we turned our attention to the content. The content of Hosea's book can be broken down in its larger sections with three main sections in the book. Chapters 1 through 3 give us kind of the, the story of what is God's faithful love to us. 4 then through 12 is going to lay out what are the consequences and judgment against Israel's sin, with the final chapter being a chapter of God's restoration of His people. And so as we follow the content, we're going to follow this outline. These really are the main themes. The main themes of Hosea stand as God's covenant love, judgment against sin, and the promise of restoration. These are kind of the three main themes that chart throughout. But here's what we then started to do the last time we were together. Because the book of Hosea, and in particular the judgments that come down upon them, come down upon them because they are in what is called a covenant relationship with God. And in fact, that's the point, right? God's covenant love. And so I felt like it was important that we start by considering what does that mean? What does it mean that God engages in a covenant with us? And we looked at the idea of a covenant, this this agreement between two parties. It it is like a contract, yet, yet a little more intimate and relational. And this is what God does with Israel. God initiates a relationship with these people. He makes promises to them. He issues commands to them. If you want to engage in a relationship with me, here are the stipulations of it. You be my people, I will be your God. This this is how this relationship would work. And so God made covenants with Israel. The underlying theme behind then Hosea is the fact that the nation of Israel has violated the covenant at every single point of it. Like there's nowhere in the covenant, in the law of Moses, there's nowhere they can go and circle something and say, we got that part right. 
There's not one. <laughs> not one. There's not one command. There's not one law. There's, there's not one part of it that they could look at and say, you know what? Yeah, that's in, a, that's in the pro column. We got that one. They violated all of it. God warned them along the way to violate the covenant is to bring the consequences of the violation of the covenant. And so this, this was kind of our, our focus, and we took a look in particular at two of them. So if we go on to the next slide, we noted the covenant that God made with Abraham in Genesis 12 and 15. In fact, I think when I started out that sermon, I had a start in Genesis 12. Because believe it or not, that is the background of the book of Hosea. God comes to a man at that time named Abram and says, leave your land, go to a place that I will show you, and I will make you the father of a mighty nation. In chapter 15 of Genesis, he then brings him outside at night, has a vision, he has, he, he has this this, this grand vision where he sees the stars and, and God says, if you are able to count them, you will be able to count then your descendants. And, and then if you could count the sand that's on the seashore, you would be able to, to count your descendants. And specifically, God says, not only will you be the father of a mighty nations, but from you will come the blessing of the nations. Plural. The blessing of the nations will come through you. So this, this, by the way, was an unqualified promise that he made to Abram, Abraham. And we know that Abraham believed, and it was credited to him as righteousness, as Paul teaches us in more detail about the nature of that relationship. Then we noted another covenant that God makes with Israel. Exodus chapter 20. Now, here's what I want you to do. I know... Uh, we, we run the risk of, of losing focus when we do this. I want you to turn to Exodus chapter 19. Turn to Exodus. Keep your finger there in Hosea, okay, because we're going to come back. I hope I just marked it because I just took my finger out of Hosea. Yeah, all right. Okay, Exodus 19. I, I've, got, I've given you up there Exodus 20 and 24. Because God makes that initial covenant with Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And, and now we are centuries beyond that, right? Israel has come out of slavery. They're, they're now at Mount Sinai, the, the place where now God is going to make, in terms of the Old Testament, the covenant. The covenant, the law, what's going to be called the law of, of Moses. It is going to come down here. Now to preface it, here's what, here's what God says. Beginning in verse 3. And Moses went up to God, of chapter 19. And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, and keep my covenant then you shall be to me a special treasure above all people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. 
So this is the preface then to the covenant that's made in Exodus 20. It's a text you're probably familiar with. This is then the laying out of the Ten Commandments. We have God laying out how the people are to relate to Him in 1 through 4, and then how the people are to relate to one another in 6 through 10. And if you go all, then if you were to go all the way to chapter 24 of Exodus, you'll find this, in essence, a covenant ceremony where the, the covenant is, in, in, to some degree, restated, and in essence, the people are asked, are you going to do this? And the people say, yes, we will do this, which they blow like 30 days later, right? Yeah, we'll do this. Until Moses stays up on the mountain too long and we get a little creative with the gold and we decide to make a calf and to worship it, all right? So they're only a month out from this and they break the covenant. So I I lay that foundation because I think that is then undergirding what happens here. God had told Israel, this is the nature of our relationship. I will be your God. You will be my people. You will be a special treasure to me. You'll be be a royal people. You'll be like a priesthood unto me. And you'll be blessed. People said, yes, that is exactly what we want. We saw what you did in Egypt. Yes. We don't want the Egyptian gods. We want the one true God. So we fast forward centuries later back again to Hosea. And what has happened? But that the people have hardly had a season in their history where they were faithful to this covenant. And by the time we get to Hosea, God is now ready, after centuries of patience, God is now going to judge. He does it in one of the strangest ways in all the Bible. He comes to a prophet named Hosea, and he says, you're going to take for yourself an unfaithful wife. And your relationship with her and the kids that are born, your relationship in this family is going to mirror, it's going to be a metaphor of the relationship I have with Israel. It's going to be a relationship that not only demonstrates my judgment upon them, but my deep and abiding love for them. So we got into chapter 1, and we look specifically at these children. We find that that as you get into chapter 1, God lays out the command there in verse 2, take for yourself a wife of harlotry, right? It's a, that's a, it's a gra- it seems like to me a, a very graphic word, and it is. I mean, she, though we talk some about whether or not she was faithful when she entered into the relationship or not, certainly as soon as she got into this thing, Gomer, it's an odd name for a wife, nonetheless, all right, that's his wife. And, and so she immediately, practically, begins acting unfaithfully. So the rest of chapter 1 lays out for us these children that are born to Hosea. Well, first Hosea and then, then to Gomer. All three of them given names. All these names describing what is going to be God's judgment Upon them. So God has told Hosea, you're going to have a wife, this, this woman's going to have kids, these kids are going to serve as illustrations of what is going to be the judgment that's going to come upon Israel. And if you recall, we pointed out very intentionally 
that the very first one, verse 3, so he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. They called this son's name Jezreel, and Jezreel means God will scatter. And this is what God is going to do when the Assyrian army comes into Israel and, and in essence destroys them, I mean takes over, and then they will be scattered. By the way, from this moment, from this moment on, if you are a part of the ten northern tribes of Israel, meaning if you were not a part of the tribe of Judah or the tribe of Benjamin, from this point on, you have no idea what tribe you came from. They'll be scattered. Isn't it interesting that we have two prominent figures in the New Testament and we know the tribe they came from? Jesus from Judah and Paul from the tribe of Benjamin. I just find that interesting, right? I don't know if you make a lot of that, but preachers can make a lot about just anything. All right, so, but I do find that fascinating, right? That here's, here you have this specific judgment that comes upon them. They will, be, they will be scattered. But you'll note from here on out, verse 6, And she conceived and again and bore a daughter. It says the same thing in verse 8. Now when she had weaned, lo, Ruhamah, she conceived and bore a son. You'll notice who's missing from the text both times. Hosea. These are not his kids. These are other kids. These are children of harlotry. That phrase will come up in, in chapter 2 here in just a minute. So this is what happens. God says this is going to be the nature of your relationship with Gomer. You're going to marry her, you're going to have a child, but then she's going to be unfaithful to you. And we... Listen, if she's going to be unfaithful once, if she's going to be unfaithful twice, she's going to what? Be unfaithful again and again. In other words, that's the pattern that's being set up for us here. We don't have any evidence she had any other kids, uh, but this is the pattern that's being set up, and this is the nature of Israel's relationship to God and faithfulness, harlotry, immorality. She's going after other gods. She's going after the things of the world. God, and God, God says, this is then now going to be the nature of my relationship with her. I will scatter them, and then there will be no mercy. And then, then the name of the next child is no people. But then you have the strangest turn of events. And this, By the way, Hosea does this to us all the time. Hosea takes us to one side where we've got all these really troubling things being said, like no, like scattering and no mercy, and, and there'll be no people. The language of judgment in the first nine verses, the end, verse nine, for you are not my people, and I will not be your God. That sounds awful, right? Anybody else think that sounds awful? But then he takes us all the way to the other side, right? He flips it on us. And then in verse 10, yet the number, and this, by the way, this is when, hopefully it makes sense, why we went to Genesis 12 and eventually Exodus. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And it shall come to pass, in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there it shall be said to them, You are sons of the living God. Then the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together and appoint for themselves one head, and they shall come up out of the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. Say to your brethren, My people, 
and to your sisters, mercy is shown. That's just a stunning reversal. Like it, like so Hosea said all this stuff, and then he comes back and he says, Nope, then it's all gonna be the other way. This is all gonna happen, but then there's going to be this radical transformation. Now, what is the explanation for this? I mean, what, what is the nature in which this restoration will take place? There is one, there's only one answer for why verses 10 and 11 are stated the way that they are stated. There's only one answer. What answer is that? Jesus, right? I mean, in other words, what, what, is, the, what is the means by which God fulfills the covenant that was made with Abraham? I, I, I think I, I mentioned this last time, but it's interesting to me when God tells Abram, I'm going to make you a mighty nation, as numerous as the sands on the seashore. And then what do we have two books later? The book of three books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. I'm going to give you children, in other words, to say as many as the stars are in the sky and as many as there are sand, there's sand on the seashore. In other words, what's he saying? I'm going to give you so many kids you can't number them. And what do we have in the fourth book of the Bible? But all of the descendants of Abraham are numbered. So that's not the fulfillment of the promise. The fulfillment of the promise is not when two million of them walk out of Egypt. That's not the fulfillment of that promise. How do you get to the point to where you cannot number the sons of Abraham? There has to be a grafting that takes place. In other words, those of us who are outside of the bloodline have to be grafted in. Those who are not children have to be adopted as children. The only way this is fulfilled is because in Jesus Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek. And those who are redeemed now become rightly identified as sons of Abraham. If you want more details about that New Testament wise, just read the book of Galatians. That's heart and soul to Paul's argument in the book of Galatians. It's heart and soul to his argument as to why the Gentiles don't have to follow the Old Testament law. So all of this is fulfilled. The fact that, that, we, that they go from not being a people to being a people, that you have this language of Judah and Israel coming back together, that there'll be this great day of Jezreel, my people and mercy is shown. I think the initial fulfillment of that comes to us in the gospel, comes to us in Christ. His work brings down that wall of separation, and Him now we are added into that family. And so now, do you think you could number how many redeemed there are throughout all of human history? Could we number that? No, not even close. And in fact, what happens when you get to the book of Revelation and John sees a multitude that cannot be numbered surrounding the throne. So, so this, this, is, this is why I think you have in the New Testament uh, some, some, uh, an echo for sure of Hosea 
And then I've got another reference here to to how the covenant then is fulfilled and how the the New Testament writers viewed it this way. So, uh, two examples here of where I think this shows up in the New Testament. So, we go on to the next slide. So, Romans chapter 9, 25 and 26. So, you can write that down and you can go back and you can read Romans 9. So, we've we've studied Romans 9. (laughs) Um, that was some time ago, right? We got, we got our way through it. This, this is the infamous text. Jacob I have loved. Esau I have hated. This is where, where he says, God, God will have mercy on whoever He wants to have mercy and compassion on whoever He wants to have compassion. Or in talking about Pharaoh, he says, I'll harden who I want to harden. Uh, that's, that's what comes up. Here uh, in, in Romans chapter 9, it's in Romans 9 then, uh, where Paul is fundamentally making this argument. Just because you have Jewish blood doesn't mean you're a child of God. It doesn't mean that. In fact, he goes on to say God always had a remnant there, there were always plenty of those who had Jewish blood who, in fact, were uh, rebellious. God always had a remnant of people. And in the midst of this, in the midst of the argument of chapter 9, he's also saying, and it is through this then that Gentiles are added into this mix. And he quotes, as he says also in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people. And her beloved who is not beloved, and it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there they shall be called the sons of the living God. So how did Paul understand Hosea? He understood it to be fulfilled, at least partially, in Christ. Now, I will suggest to you, I think there is another, there, there is more coming. In the, my particular view of the end of things Uh, I I think then this also points us to that day, the day at at the end, the the final work of God. And I do think uh, there will be a work among the nation of Israel. I do think that is a future work to come. I think that's part of what is prophesied here. So so this opens up here, uh, giving us this connection with, with the covenant from the Old Testament, Genesis, God's then saying, you violated that covenant. And then God's saying, but I, I will restore you back. And the means by which that happens is through the gospel. Now there's another text I want you to look at, because this then ties us back to Exodus chapter 19 and 20. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 10. Again, this is just giving you a way to understand that the New Testament authors viewed the covenant relationship God had with Israel also pointing us to what will be the fulfillment of these things in the new covenant. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but have now obtained mercy. So even Peter recognizes this, this is what God was getting at. Even the statements of Exodus 19, you will be a royal priesthood. That's exactly what God said to Israel there at the base of Mount Sinai. He said the exact same thing 
You will be my own special people. How is this fulfilled? It is fulfilled then through the gospel. And so, if we go on to the next slide. So again, just to get, a, get, our, get our foundation right here in the, for the book of Hosea, for the nature of these relationships, only Christ fulfills these covenants. These covenants that are made to the people are fulfilled by Christ. And note the two ways in which that is done in terms of the covenant made with Abraham and the one made with Moses. Through the gospel, the descendants of Abraham become as numerous as the stars in the sky. So through the gospel, then that that promise made to Abraham is fulfilled. And through the work of Christ, both the law of Moses and the consequences for violating them are fulfilled. So again, you know, God doesn't just make a promise and then say, well, that didn't work out for you people, so let's move on to promise number two. Well, that didn't work out very well, so let's go on to promise number three. In other words, the new covenant is the fulfillment of these covenants. By the way, they're symbolized for us in what? What important event that we celebrate once a quarter. <laughs> Say we celebrate, we gather around the table, right? In other words, this, this, is, this is symbolized then for us in the body in the blood of Christ, in the bread, and in the cup. And so that, that idea that through the work of Christ we have the law of Moses and its consequences for violating them being fulfilled, that is critical. And I think it's critical for why then Hosea chapter 1 in the end, what is he even talking about? This is what he is talking about. This is how all of this happens. How do we become sons of God again? Because all of us have broken the law. All of us have violated God's standards. I need someone who can fulfill that law, who can keep it, as he himself said, every jot and tittle, right? I need somebody who can keep that law, but I also need somebody who can bear the consequences for violating that law. We often don't think about that part of it, but we should. To violate the law brings death. That is what I deserve. It's what Israel deserves. Yet this is exactly what Christ did. He bore in His body the wrath of God for our sin. In other words, the consequences for violating the law were poured out onto Christ on the cross. So, the gospel then is the means by which these covenants are fulfilled. So, that, that's chapter, chapter 1. Now, next week we'll get more detail into chapter 2. But let's, uh, let, let me give you just a bit of a warm-up here, all right? Because I'm sure you're going to go home and you're going to read chapter 2 and 3. Keeping in mind, we break down this text into three sections. And the first one being this first three chapters that kind of lays out for us the basics of the book. God calling Hosea to marry an unfaithful woman who's going to have then kids as a result of this. And how this mirrors the relationship God has with Israel, the judgment to come, and then the restoration to come. As we get into chapter 2, I want you to just note how it begins in verse 2. <clears throat> By the way, there'll, there'll be more notes next week. All right, so I know we've run out, you've run out of blanks to fill in, right? 
Yeah, okay, so I timed it out pretty good. All right, so you've run out of blanks to fill in tonight. So don't worry, I'll, I'll get you new stuff next week. But I do want you to note this as it begins. Chapter 2 then, Hosea's going to lay out what it says. Bring charges against your mother. Bring charges. In other words, this is an indictment. This is ling- legal language. This is God taking Israel to court. And, and I, know, I know this, this word I'm about to use... It's going to seem really strong, but this, this, is, this is God divorcing her. It's God divorcing her, divorcing Israel, in a sense. Obviously, we understand that metaphorically, right? But, but, it, but that, that is the language. I, I bring this charge, for she is not my wife, nor am I her husband. Let her put away her harlotries from her sight and her adulteries from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and expose her as in the day she was born. By the way, do you know how old that phrase is? Do you realize that phrase was that old? That's a phrase we use, right? Naked is the day you were born. I mean, that's an old, old phrase. Sometimes we don't realize how much of this stuff comes into the English language has been around with us for about more than 2,000 years. And then he says, And make her like a wilderness, and set her like a dry land. And slay her with thirst. So, so this is how chapter 2 then is going to lay out. And it's going to do something similar to chapter 1. It's going to lay out these indictments. It's going to lay out the charges against Israel. And we're going to see this then mirrored to some degree in what happens in Hosea's relationship with Gomer. And what's going to happen, Gomer's going to find herself, in essence, going after other lovers thinking that they're providing for her. Turns out it's Hosea all along. Because this is what is going on in God's relationship with Israel. It, Israel has gone after other gods, attributing their blessing to them. God has been providing, but God is going to withhold it. He's, go, he's going to lift His hands from them. I'll tell you, this, this would be a, a, a good way to, to start I mean, to stop our time tonight. You know, here, here's a message I think we learn from Hosea. I think it's a profound one. I think we do well to learn this lesson. Hosea reminds us that sometimes God's most effective form of judgment and discipline is to do absolutely nothing. Pastor, that's weird. What do you mean? There are certainly times where God directly intervenes, right? Flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, Egypt. We have direct intervention from God. But what are some other ways that God judges? He just lifts His hands. In fact, this is what Romans chapter 1 warns us about, is it not? God gave them over to a depraved heart. He said, okay, I lift my hands. I think Hosea reminds us, a lot of the minor prophets may would do this as well. I think this, this is probably the last time we'll see this theme, that, that sometimes then what God does is God simply allows the consequences of sin to be brought to bear on the life of the individual. Ideally then as a way to draw them back. That's, that's what God is saying. I bring these charges. Get rid of your unfaithfulness. 
God's wanting to bring her back, but in order to do that, he is going to let then sin take its course, and and he's he's going to then remove what you would call perhaps the hedge of protection, the hedge of blessing around Israel. She's going to pay dearly for it. But here's what's interesting about Israel and Judah. We go for centuries in the Old Testament hearing again and again and again about their idolatry, their rebellion, their going after other gods. Do you know by the time you get to the New Testament, you know what, you know what Jesus never accuses them of? Idolatry. Now, uh, at least... There's no evidence of any high places. There's no more Baal worship. So, in other words, by the time they get back from exile, after all that is prophesied and say, you know, a book like Hosea, a book like Daniel, once they get back from uh, being scattered in Assyria, get back from captivity in Babylon, once they come back, those then intervening years, the, the in-between the Testament years, and by the time we get to Jesus, the one thing we never find, and by the way, since then, to this day, you know what you never find evidence of among the Jews? <laughs> Idolatry. You don't, it, it never shows up again. We go for centuries after century after century, and then after this. So I, I think there's something then to the message of the prophets and where God is making them pro- promises. I will, in fact, he'll say it to, to, in Hosea, I'm going to take the name of Baal out of your mouth. But that's not going to be a pleasant process. Think, think root canal without Novocaine. All right? In other words, yeah, I'm going to take the name of Baal out, but this is not going to be pleasant for you. So come back next week, and uh, we'll, we'll keep working our way through Hosea. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you again for gathering your people. We thank you for this Lord's Day. What a privilege it is to be with sons and daughters of God, brothers and sisters in Christ, and to again think about the glories of the gospel of Christ. To allow this then to set our hearts and minds as we enter in to the week that is before us. Father, may we then live as your people. May, may we live in faithfulness and obedience. And when we find ourselves wooed by the world, that they would, we would then come back to you in repentance and restoration. And Father, we are tools in your hands. We pray that we would be a means to your end. Use us as you see fit and all for your glory. That's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.